the book of Revelation is written to local churches to help them endure in following Jesus until he returns. And in the last few chapters that we've been looking at, um, the main way that Jesus has been motivating his churches and their endurance has been through these visions of judgment. The reality of the coming judgment is motivation to cling close to Jesus through faith. And it's also a motivation to endure because we know that the the evil around us that both tempts us and causes us to suffer will one day be judged. And so it it is good uh, what we have been looking at these last few weeks. But in these closing chapters of Revelation... Jesus motivates his churches to endure by showing us a vision of paradise. The paradise that we are enduring to get to. The paradise that awaits us on the other side of perseverance, on the other side of the tribulation of this life and this world. And so with that, Let's read together Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. John, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the Thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, 
the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And you may be seated. Well, the central truth of Revelation 21, 1 through 8, is this, God will dwell with his people in a new creation. And there are two groups of people who need to hear this message, that God will dwell with his people in a new creation. The first are those who are comfortable with this life. The first group that needs to know this message are those who are, who, who are comfortable with life in this world. If you like things the way that they are, you need to know that this world will not last. There's a better world to long for. But the second group of people are those who are weary from life in this world. If you're worn out from trying to follow Christ in this broken world, you need to know the new world is coming. We're almost home. So whether you need to loosen your grip on this world or you need to hold more tightly to Christ to get you to the next world, God's word for you today is God will dwell with his people in a new creation. So that's the, that's the central truth that drives everything that we see in this passage. It, and so in light of that central truth, I want us to consider two ways that we ought to respond to this truth from these verses. First of all, long to dwell with God. Long to dwell with God. John writes in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Back in chapter 20 and verse 11, John saw the first heaven and the first earth disappear. Peter says that heaven and earth as we know it are going to be dissolved. And God then shows John this picture of a new heaven, a new earth. God first promised the new heaven and the new earth through the prophet Isaiah. He said in Isaiah 65, 17 through 19, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. John is seeing these promises being fulfilled here in Revelation 21. After the final judgment, 
God is going to usher in a new creation. I think we, would, we should understand this idea of new, uh, not to mean that this old world is going to be totally annihilated and something entirely different is going to be replacing it, but instead we should understand the new heavens and new earth to be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, that the newness is, is not something that's unrecognizable, but that is recognizable from the old creation, but perfect and glorious. And the reason I say that is because we already have seen the very first uh, uh, of God's new creation. We, we've already seen what Scripture refers to as the first fruits, uh, and that is the resurrection body of Jesus, uh, which was not unrecognizable. And In fact, it still had the scars in his hands and in his side. And I believe what we see in Jesus' resurrection body is a picture of the renewal that's going to come and the new heavens and the new earth. It will be familiar, it will be recognizable, and it will also be entirely new and perfect. John says here that he saw that the sea was no more. Now, John isn't saying that there's not going to be water in the new earth. Remember, Revelation communicates the truth in apocalyptic literature and in symbolic language. And the sea in Revelation is often a symbol for evil. For instance, in Revelation 13, the beast rose out of the sea. In Revelation 20, the sea gave up the dead who were in it for the final judgment. And a couple of times, John has seen a sea like glass in the, the old heaven, the current heaven, and that shows God's control over the realm of evil. But, but in the new heaven and in the new earth, it's not just that the sea is calm, the sea is gone. In the new heaven and the new earth, evil will be entirely eradicated. Well, look at what John sees next in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we already saw a vision of the bride, the church, in chapter 19. And what she's adorned in, we're told, is righteous deeds. So here, John is seeing the church, again, as a bride, but also portrayed as a city, the holy city, New Jerusalem. And John is going to get a closer look at the bride, the New Jerusalem, in the second half of chapter 21. So we're going to save that for next time. Uh, for now, what we need to understand is that the most important thing about the New Jerusalem is who lives there. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What a glorious future to long for. In this verse is the ultimate fulfillment of God's purpose for creation and for humanity. In your Bible, as you look at this verse, you may have a footnote that tells you that that word dwelling place is also the word for tabernacle. The idea of God's tabernacle, his dwelling place being with humanity, is a thread that 
ties the entire Bible together. God created the world as a place for him to dwell with humans. He created the earth. He created humans. He, he, made a, he planted a garden where he would dwell with man. They would be his people. He would be their God. But because humans sinned, they were banished from the presence of God, no longer allowed to enter God's presence in his tabernacle on earth. It's a book that we read to our kids where, it, to put it this way, because of your sin, you can't come in. But God had a plan to once again dwell with humanity. After God brought Israel out of Egypt, he gave them instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the literal tent where he would once again dwell with people on earth. He, he said in Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. In Leviticus 26, 12, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. But in the tabernacle, access to God's presence was still limited. It was good. It was better. But it was still limited. God's plan to dwell with his people then took a massive leap forward in the first coming of Jesus. John writes in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, God's presence wasn't just limited to a tent or a temple. God became a man. He walked among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And not only that, but Jesus went to the cross to deal with the sin that separated humanity from the presence of God. When he died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19, and 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All those who trust in the death of Jesus to cleanse them from their sin can now experience the presence of God. It's the reason we've been able to sit here and pray today. And God has heard us because of what Jesus did to tear the curtain Give us access to God. So then God's plan has taken an even further leap forward, not only in the ministry of Jesus, but uh, in his earthly ministry, but also now that he has ascended to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell among his people. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he's quoting Leviticus 26, 12, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Today, the church is the temple and God dwells among us. But we still don't experience the fullness of God's presence. The final stage of God's plan to dwell with humanity 
will happen when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. In the new Jerusalem, the whole world will be the tabernacle of God. For those of us who trust in Christ, he will dwell with us as our God. No sin will separate us from him. We will delight in his presence without any barriers, without any limitations, and with no end in sight. Experiencing God's presence in a new creation also means getting to enjoy all the blessings of God without any of the burdens of this old world. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think of all the tears that this old world has produced. Tears from loss, tears from persecution, tears from injustice, tears from suffering, tears from hurt. Here's the future for every single person in Christ. God will wipe away every tear that this old world has filled your eyes with. Not one will remain. There will be no more death. In Revelation 20:14, John saw death thrown into the lake of fire and the new heaven and the new earth. You will never have to fear your blessed life ever coming to an end. There's no more death. There will be no more mourning. In the new creation, you will never mourn because you will never lose anyone or anything again. It will be all gains and no losses forever. There will be no more crying. Not only will all your old tears be wiped away, you will not have any new tears either. There will be no more pain anymore. You will have a physical body without any physical pain. And you will have a soul without any spiritual pain. We will not experience any of the suffering that is commonplace in this world because on that day we will be able to say the former things have passed away. Death, mourning, crying, pain. They're going to dissolve away along with the old earth and the old heaven. Do you long for the new heaven and the new earth? 
Do you long for the paradise that John describes here? If you do, I think this passage would have us ask, what is it that you're looking forward to? Do you want heaven for God? Do you long for His presence? Or are you only looking forward to the blessings that come with that? Is the best thing about heaven to you that there's going to be no pain and suffering and death? If if what you want is the blessings of the new creation, but you're not excited about the God of the new creation, what you're wanting is not the new creation. You, You cannot have God's blessings without God himself. Adam and Eve tried that. But what you get when you try to have the blessings of God without God is this creation, this brokenness that we experience today. When you reject God's law and God's design, you are rejecting the one who is perfect. And when you take the perfect one out of the equation, all that will follow is imperfection. If you seek wholeness and joy and gain apart from God, all that will follow is brokenness and sorrow and mourning and loss. These blessings described here are are not separable from God himself. And you can't get them by manipulating God as a means to an end of what you want. The, The blessings of the new creation are just the natural result of being in a perfect relationship of worship with the perfect creator. And so may this passage help us see that the blessing of the new creation is the presence of God. God is the one from whom all blessings flow. It's the dwelling place of God that our hearts are meant to long for. And so as we look at this passage, if you find that your heart is not longing enough for God, let me encourage you to recalibrate your desires, that you might long for God as your greatest treasure. And as you seek to to recalibrate your desires, the, the best place to start is by praying. Confess your struggle to God. Confess that you're longing for eternal life more than you're longing for the life giver. Confess that you're longing for the face of your loved one more than you're longing for the face of Jesus. Confess that that you struggle to long most for God himself. And And then just ask God. Ask God to increase your desire for him. Ask God to to show you his glory. Ask him to help you see that there's nothing better than his presence. And then after praying, go to God's perfect revelation of himself in Scripture. 
Look at the stories of Scripture and see God's character on display. Walk through the Psalms and see not only the portrait of God in the Psalms, but but also the ways in which the psalmists long for God's presence. Look at the life of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Meditate on the, the intricacies of the gospel and the astounding grace that God shows to sinners. Fuel your desire for God's presence by filling your heart with a picture of who God is. And then take all that you've seen and turn it back to God in prayer and worship. May our prayer be that of Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. God will dwell with his people in a new creation, so may we long to dwell with God. A second response to the central truth. Understand who will dwell with God. Understand who will dwell with God. After hearing about the new heaven and earth that God will create in verses 1 through 4, John hears God himself speak beginning in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God looks at John, and he makes a trustworthy and true promise. He will make all things new. And Actually, notice how he uses the present tense. I am making all things new. You can be so certain of the promise of the future new creation, it's as if it's already present. So God tells John then, write these words down. These trustworthy and true words need to be written down and preserved. They need to be sent around to Jesus' churches. God wants his people to hear his promise. The new creation is coming. If these words are trustworthy and true, then we need to keep holding on. We need to press on toward the prize. If these words are trustworthy and true, we need to resist the draw of the world. We need to set our eyes on the world to come. Look at how God describes himself in verse 6. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The new creation is the culmination of what God has been up to since this, the beginning of this creation, when, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, what will be abundantly clear is that God is sovereign. We will see he is the author of history. He's the alpha. He put his plan into motion. He carried out his plan, steering it along every step of the way. And he is the omega. He completed what he started. So who is going to be in this new heaven and new earth with God? Well, first God tells us who will dwell with him in the new creation. And then he tells us who will not dwell with him in the new creation. First, who will dwell with God? God describes the kind of person who will dwell with him in the new creation in in two ways. 
Look at uh, verse 6. God says in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. So first, who will dwell with God? The one who thirsts. The one who thirsts. This is an invitation that God gave in Isaiah 55, 1. He said, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And and then Jesus reiterated that promise. He gave a further interpretation of it in John 7, 37 to 39. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So the spring of water is God himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the water of life that we need from God is the eternal life. That's found in knowing God. Knowing God is life-giving, soul-refreshing, and thirst-quenching. God offers eternal life in himself for free, without payment. He is inviting anyone to come to Him for an eternity of abundant life in paradise as a free gift of His grace. No payment is required. You don't have to do good deeds in order to earn this. You don't have to jump through religious hoops or perform rituals. The only qualification you have to meet for receiving eternal life is that you thirst for God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As the hymn says, All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Do you thirst for God? Does your soul long for your creator? Do you long to know someone who will never let you down? Do you want to be loved? Not based on what you've done or even who you are, but simply because God is a never-ending fountain of abundant, extravagant love. Do you want every longing of your soul to be satisfied. If you know this kind of thirst, then don't look to anyone but God to satisfy this thirst. God said in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, since uh, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Don't look anywhere else for satisfaction. Don't look anywhere else to quench your thirst. Don't look to another human 
to satisfy your soul. Don't look to this world to quench your thirst. There is only one who can give you living water. Come to Jesus. Trust in Him not only to save you from your sins. Trust in Him not only as Lord of your heart. Trust in Him and look to Him for everything your heart desires. If you come to Jesus through faith, for free, by grace, you will never thirst again. God describes this, the kind of person who will dwell with him in the new creation as the one who thirsts for God. He describes the kind of person who will dwell with him in the new creation a second way. He says it's the one who conquers. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Over and over again, Revelation has called us to conquer. Conquering means enduring, persevering. It means enduring in faith. Not just trusting one time, but persevering in faith all the way to the end. Now, faith begins in a moment when we admit our sinfulness, our need for Jesus to bring us to God. But enduring faith also grows in faith from that moment on. It, it means learning to trust in Jesus' ongoing forgiveness through regular repentance. It, it means learning to trust in Jesus for hope and for assurance. Enduring faith also keeps believing. When trials come, enduring faith presses in to God for peace and stability. When doubts come, Enduring faith goes to God for confidence and comes out stronger on the other side. Enduring in faith is a major part of, of what it means to conquer. Conquering also means enduring in obedience. Enduring in obedience is just bearing the fruit of faith. Enduring in obedience means not just saying that I trust in Jesus, but demonstrating it through my actions. When sinful pleasure tempts me, I say no because I believe that only Jesus can satisfy me. When sin would help me get ahead in the world, I choose faithfulness in Christ because I believe that whatever I give up in this world doesn't compare to the gain of following Christ. Enduring in obedience means not growing weary in doing good. When it feels like I have nothing to show for my good works, I endure, not for results in this life, but for the glory of the God who will dwell with me in the next life. When my obedience is met with opposition or even persecution, I endure understanding what we've seen in Revelation that those who conquer all the way to the next life are often those who are conquered by the enemy in this life. But enduring in obedience like this is another part of what it means to conquer, to persevere all the way to the end. Well, why should we want to conquer? Because God says the one who conquers 
will receive a heritage, an inheritance. Uh, This new heaven and new earth described here are the inheritance received by the one who conquers. God says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, when you hear the word son, don't be thrown off by the male gender. Women can conquer too. Praise God. The idea of sonship isn't about being male. The idea of sonship has to do with being the one who gets the inheritance, the heritage. The promise of sonship is this. Everything that belongs to God belongs to you in Christ. The promise of sonship is that everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. And to the one who conquers, he says, I will be his God and he will be my Son. That should blow you away. These are words, this is a direct quote from something that God first spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14, describing the Messiah, the Son of God. But what God is saying here is that in the new creation, that promise meant for Jesus is not only going to be fulfilled in him, it will be true of every single person who follows Jesus. Galatians 4, 6 and 7 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So this is the promise for the one who conquers, who endures to the end, who perseveres. You won't just get to enjoy the new creation as a guest. You won't just get to enjoy the new creation as a tenant. You will get to enjoy the new creation as an owner, as your home. God's purpose, first stated in Genesis 1.26, will finally be fulfilled. His image bearers will have dominion over his creation. So may we endure in faith. And endure in obedience as we long for the day that we enter into the inheritance God has prepared for us. This is the kind of person who will dwell with God in the new creation. The one who thirsts. The one who conquers. But what about the one who will not dwell with God? God explains who will not dwell with him in the new heaven and new earth in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As trustworthy and true as his promises are to the one who thirsts and the one who conquers, so also are these words trustworthy and true. This list stands in contrast to those who thirst for God and who conquer. Being cowardly and faithless is the opposite of conquering. Those who conquer, as Revelation describes, are those who are faithful to Jesus, even if it means being beheaded 
for the testimony of Jesus. But cowardice would rather go with the flow of the world than take a stand for Christ. Cowardice chooses bowing to the golden statue instead of facing the fiery furnace. Those who do not stay faithful to Jesus will not experience the new heaven and the new earth. Because those who don't stay faithful to Jesus show that what they were really thirsting for wasn't God. The terms in this list in verse 8 describe unrepentant sinners. They describe people who are marked by the detestable practices of the world around them. Murderers take matters into their own hands instead of trusting in God. The, The sexually immoral run to broken cisterns of pleasure to try and quench their thirst. Sorcerers and idolaters seek the supernatural for their own gain, manipulating the supernatural instead of refu- and, but in so doing refusing to bow to the one true God. And ultimately all of these people are believing lies. Those who were marked by the qualities listed here will not dwell with God. They will receive an inheritance, but the inheritance they will receive is not the paradise of the new Jerusalem. They will inherit an eternity under the wrath of God, the second death. So you need to look at what marks the lives of those who will not dwell with God. And you need to ask, does my life look like that? Does the way that you're living today look like the kind of person that God says is going to experience the second death? If your life is marked by cowardice, just going with the flow of the sinful world around you, what does that say? If your life is marked by habitual anger, What does that say? If you're giving yourself to sexual pleasure outside of the context of marriage as God designed it, what does that say? If you're treating someone or something as more important to you than God, what does that say? If your life looks like the things mentioned in verse 8, what does that tell you? Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit. If this is what marks your life, if this is what dominates your life, if if this is a, a description of you, you need to know that if nothing changes, you're headed for an eternity separated from the presence of God, not in the dwelling place of God. But that does not have to be your future. Listen, the reason we are reading this today, the reason that God has given us Revelation 21.8 is because he loves you. It's because of his mercy and his grace that he would tell you this. God has given you this message of warning to invite you to repent 
to invite you to come to him, the spring of living water. Jesus died to forgive you of these sins, to transform your heart, transform your life away from this list. If you will turn away from your faithlessness and put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you'll be saved from the second death. Your future will be with God. So come to the water. Come to the fountain of living water. Drink without payment, for free, for eternity. Come to Jesus who will satisfy you. God will dwell with his people in a new creation. So we need to understand who will dwell with him. And who won't? Whether you are too comfortable with life in this world, or you are weary from life in this world, remember, God will dwell with his people in a new creation. How do you need to respond to that truth today? Do you need to ask God to increase your longing for his presence? Do you need to come to Jesus for the living water that only he can give? Do you need to renew your commitment to enduring and following Christ? Do you need to turn away from living for this world and trust in Jesus to save you from your sins? However you need to respond today. What I want you to hear in Revelation 21, 1 through 8, is an invitation. Jesus stands with arms wide open, ready to give life, hope, love, found only in him, to you for free, if you will come and take and drink.